We're studying through 1 Peter. We're in chapter 2, continuing to try to master the theme of this book, that we must live as followers of Jesus Christ, even in a world that may be hostile to Christianity, knowing that we are steadied by grace. We just sang of that steadying of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ, taken from the book of Hebrews, that we have an anchor for our souls, that being our Savior. As a follower of Jesus Christ, Peter says, you will stand in contrast to the unbelievers of the world. Your life will look different from the evil that abounds and from the confusion that abounds. And that contrast of your life, just by the way that you are, will be a witness to the power of the gospel to transform a life of sin to a life of righteousness. So in essence, every day you are living out a witness of what the gospel can do. You're not showing your neighbor and your coworkers that you're better than them. That somehow you're a good person and they're not. You're showing them by your life, that the gospel can change a sinful life into a life of righteousness. In just two verses of our text, Peter calls us not to a witness of our words, though that too is important, but he calls us to a witness of our works. Listen to our text, 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's our big idea this morning. Your righteous living is a witness to the watching world. That's our study this morning. We're going to reinforce this several times throughout our study. We are not saying you never have to open your mouth and speak. We are simply saying that these verses remind us that even our righteous living is a witness to the watching world. We take that idea of of being a witness from Acts when Jesus tells his disciples that they will be witnesses, those who testify to some truth in all the world, wherever they are, they will be on the witness stand making known a truth. So by your righteous living, you are witnessing to the world that sees you. So let's consider this morning, not the witness of your words, but the witness of your works. What does this mean? Number one, the witness of your works flows from your identity with Christ. It's not something that we're trying to figure out. Well, what exactly am I supposed to do? Peter is saying, beloved, you're already different. You're foreigners. You're pilgrims and exiles. Based on your standing, who you are in Christ, the way that you live will be a witness to the world. 
And he says, first, you are beloved. It implies by whom? You are beloved by God. We've already seen that. We've studied that these foreigners, these exiles, are the elect exiles. God has set his love on them. They are loved by God. They've been rescued by God. They're sure of heaven. He has promised them an inheritance. They are anchored in love. But after calling them beloved, he reminds them that they are indeed sojourners and exiles. They're not permanent residents. They're only here for a short time. They don't fit in completely anymore. They're different. Called to be different. Our identity in Christ then, we're anchored in love, we're the beloved, but we're called to be different, different from this world. It's not a good thing that we can fly under the radar and fit in, and our coworkers, after 20 years of working with us, come to your retirement party and find out, oh, I didn't know you went to church. There's something wrong with that picture, because we're supposed to stand out and be different. In essence, I should love others because I am loved by God. So Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to be known as my disciples by the way that you love. So when he says beloved, the implication here is I'm loved by God, therefore my witness of my works should be that I demonstrate love and people take notice of that. I should love others because I'm loved by God and I should live a holy life because I serve a holy God. You're sojourners and foreigners. You've you've heard the call of a new master. You serve him. He says, be holy as I am holy. So your life will look different from the world. Peter, in reminding us that our righteous living is a testimony to the world, says, "This this is only logical. You do what you do because of who you are. In other words, the witness of your works flows from your identity in Christ. So make sure you know who you are. Make sure that you know who the God of grace is. Make sure you know that marvelous grace is greater than your sin. Make sure you're anchored to Christ, that sure and steady anchor. Know who you are because who you are will determine how you live. That's why Jesus can say, by their fruits you will know them. That's why he can say, here's how I'll divide the sheep from the goats. And he goes on to give the examples of I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And if we only took those verses, it would look like, yeah, if you do charity and good works, you'll go to heaven. But that wasn't what Jesus was saying. He was saying, if your life truly belongs to Christ, he is your Savior and Lord, your fruit, your works will demonstrate that so clearly that it will be the distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. Just look at how they live. The witness of your works flows from your identity with Christ. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. But he continues, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. 
the witness of your works will set you apart. It'll show that you belong to Christ, but you need to know that it's also going to stir up some conflict. The witness of your works calls for a war with sin. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Like it or not, you've been engaged in war. The passions of the flesh are warring against your soul. It wasn't too long ago in reading a book to the the family. I guess it was, when was I doing the Roosevelt speech? (laughs) December 7th? Alan Shepard, that's who we're reading about. Uh, He was in the Navy War College or something at the time when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And in the book, it recounted much of the president's speech uh, about going to war. And so uh, I gave it my best impression and then decided to just YouTube it and let him hear the recording of uh, kind of that high-pitched voice uh, proclaiming that day of infamy. Well, a declaration of war was made because Japan had bombed us and had already engaged in war. We had no choice, in essence, but to join a war that we thought was far away. The text here is saying something similar. You may not be looking for some great battle or fight, but you're in it. You need to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. To abstain, it means to hold yourself back. Similar to the language Paul would use in in the context of sports. Speaking of the athlete who must discipline his body and keep it under subjection. He has to be able to say, no, we're not going to give up at all. We're not going to surrender to those impulses. So abstain, keep yourself back. And he says, keep yourself back from the passions of the flesh. These are the desires of the body. A body that eventually will be put off in the resurrection and will be given a new body so that there is no tainting, no defilement by sin. But until that resurrection, we're going to battle with this flesh, this body that creates these feelings and desires for things that would transgress the boundaries that God has put in our life in order to be holy. Galatians 5 reminds us of the works of the flesh. He says they're evident. And not just because you know really bad people, but because it still comes out of you unless you keep step in the spirit. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Not a pretty picture. And that's why Peter says, I urge you to hold yourself back. It's the fruit of the Spirit, temperance, self-control. To hold yourself back from the passions of the flesh, which he says are waging war against your soul. That waging war is the Greek word for strategize comes right out of the Greek. You transliterate it right into English. Same spelling and all to strategize, to create a campaign of military action. In other words, the battle is on. 
And there are two opposing strategies. One is the strategy of sin and the devil. And sin's plan is to ruin. It's a war against your soul, which means it's out to dismantle, to disrupt, to destroy you, the person, to rob you of your joy, to frustrate you in your faith, to cause you to abandon faith altogether. Sin's plan is to ruin. It's a war against your well-being. Sin is a war against your satisfaction. It is a war against your joy, even though the devil says, go ahead and indulge in the sin for your satisfaction and for your joy. But he's a liar because it is actually a war against your soul, your soul's peace and rest, satisfaction and joy. My friends, believe today from the authority of Scripture that your enemy, the devil, delights in your ruin. He will ruin the satisfaction of God's provisions for you and your family. No matter how great they are, it only takes that one thought of wanting a little bit more to throw away all of the thanksgiving and praise for what God's done. Satan will ruin the beauty of sexuality by enticing to promiscuous living. He'll ruin friendships, long established, long enjoyed, long benefited from by by just a thought of selfishness. He can ruin marriage with a call to indulge a desire and take the first look of something inappropriate. He'll ruin your appetite for God and his word by giving you a steady diet of the Cheetos of the world's entertainment. He'll be subtle at times with those who are actually grounded and spiritually minded. He'll be flagrant and in your face at other times. But at all times, he will be carrying out a masterful strategy against your soul. And he's willing to play the long game. He's willing to wait for months or years. He's okay with marriages going 20, 25 years because he knows his strategy. He knows the steps he's asking you to take today that that might not ruin on the outside for all to see for a long time. This is the devil we're up against. In the Sunday school hour, we considered the schemes of the devil We need to be wise. Peter says, I'm urging you, brothers, remember who you are in Christ and keep yourself away from all of sin's ruin. You are in a battle this week. And yes, it's a battle for your marriage. It's a battle for your kids. It's a battle for your testimony. It's a battle for your soul, Peter says. Sin ruins But while sin's plan is to ruin, God's plan is for you to stand. 
Refuse to move toward the lie. Refuse to accept any part of it. Dismantle the lie with God's truth. Turn down every suggestion that God is not faithful or good. The opposite is described in James 1, where James said, Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own desire. Peter's warning us to wake up to the reality of war. Certainly with the pictures and the stories from Ukraine, we are reminded yet again by the most recent war of how suddenly things can turn into destruction. On one day, yes, the troops were on the border and things looked bad and yet we're still waiting for something to happen. And on the next day, buildings are imploding as missiles came flying into the country. They woke up to the reality of war, and so must we. Anything less than vigilance will be harmful to your soul and to your witness, the witness of your works. Number three, the witness of your works points to the beauty of goodness. Now, what does this mean? The beauty of goodness. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Let's look at this this first part of the verse. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That word honorable is one of the Greek words used for good. So your Bible may even say that, something about good conduct or good behavior among the Gentiles. The interesting part of this word for good is that it is often used to pull in the idea of beauty. So you could say that a certain piece of art was good, and by it you would mean it was good in its perfect capturing of that landscape or the portrait of that person. It, was, it had an element of beauty to it, of perfection. So here Peter is, is telling us the witness of your works points to a a standard of goodness that is good and right and beautiful. It's lovely, Philippians would say, when it tells us how to think of certain things. Think on those things which are, and it lists all these things, and one of them is that word lovely, and it doesn't mean think of frilly lace things in Victorian place settings or something. Not that kind of lovely, but lovely in, in that it becomes that standard of perfection, in the way that somebody could watch somebody play a sport and say, oh, the way he throws is a thing of beauty. And you're like, what? Like the non-sports people are like, that sounds crazy. Or someone else might describe something beautiful in a sculpture or a landscape as you see a beautiful sunset or something. Those kind of standards that call us to, oh, now that's beautiful. That's what Peter's trying to capture here. Let your conduct be something that just stands out as that defines the standard of good. Or in this case, the translation, honorable. What Peter is doing is reminding us that there really is absolute truth. There really is a standard for determining good from bad. So goodness and beauty, 
virtue and morality, these are reflections of the image of God, the creator. They're evidences of his existence. And so this this ability to define good and bad and to figure out where does that come from becomes an exercise in what we call apologetics. You see, in one sense, you can defend God and who he is and what he does by saying, well, the Bible says it. This is what the Bible says about God. Another approach of apologetics would be say, no, no, wait a minute, you, you said that was bad, what you saw on the news. Why is that bad? How do you define bad? And how do you define good? And what's the standard of that? And you begin to engage someone, leading them to the logical conclusion of absolute truth. There really is a way to determine right from wrong. In a sense, you are proving the existence of God by the way he has revealed himself. So that's a big idea to think of apologetics and those kind of arguments. Peter isn't necessarily here calling us to always logically present people with a witness to God by our arguments. Many times he's saying that argument for the existence of God is made better by your life than by your lips. Let them see the standard of goodness. Let your conduct be honorable, even among the Gentiles. In other words, even Gentiles will say, now, I got to admit, that's a pretty noble act. Or, I got to hand it to the guy. He's been married to that woman for 50 years. Or, he's worked here all these years, and he's, he's always probably been the most faithful employee we've had. Even the Gentiles will have to embrace the beauty of a standard of goodness because you keep putting it in their face. Your conduct is always out there as honorable. And it's known. The point here is they can't deny it. This is why even unbelievers might be recognized as good people for staying married to their spouse, for being good workers, for being patriots, for being good soldiers, for sacrificing themselves for others. That's the image of God stamped on humanity. Christians, of all people then, should have this testimony, this witness of their works that is constantly portraying honor, goodness, morality, virtue. It's who we are. It's what we do. The witness of your works points to this standard of goodness, this beauty that is found in rightness. So are you known as an honorable person to the unbelievers in your circles? Your life should be recognized by the world for its goodness. Your waitress should appreciate seeing you at their table and not someone else. Your neighbors should be thankful for the generosity they've come to expect from you. Your response to hearing bad news should cause the doctor to think, that's a different response than I often see. The way you work at your marriage, the way that you parent your children in the backyard when the neighbors can hear it, whether you thought about it or not, should be a testimony to the fact that you're different. It should point to goodness. 
But he goes on, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Fourth, note that the witness of your works argues against the accusations of evil. And the accusations will come. The text says, when they speak against you as evildoers. Historically, you can see it in Rome, and we can see it in America. These accusations tend to first be cultural accusations. They just don't like the difference of your life. They don't like your stand on morality and holiness. But as in Rome, so may go the United States, that eventually those accusations move from just being cultural dislikes to then legal persecution, legal accusation. In the first century, the accusations began as insult. Really, much of Peter's writing is really geared more towards the insult, to the hostility of of not being liked. Persecution by Rome hasn't quite flourished like we think of it yet. And so it's, it's really more of a cultural opposition. They're abandoned by family. Work may be hard to find. It's increasing, but it's, it's morphing from just cultural, we don't like you Christians, to now with the full weight of our government, we're going to hate you in visible ways. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote that Christians were, quote, hated for their vices. Rumors were spread about even the Lord's Supper being acts of cannibalism, uh, bizarre charges like that, uh, that they worshiped the dead because it was known at times that they met in the tombs since they could meet nowhere else. Suetonius described Christians as, quote, a class of people animated by a novel and mischievous superstition. They were just looked down on. They were a cult. And then I was fascinated to read that perhaps the most common accusation against Christians in Rome, first cultural grievance and then ultimately the accusation that led to persecution was not simply that they worshipped God, but the number one charge was that they were haters of humanity, that they were hateful that they were unloving in their positions and in their beliefs. So you'll read often in the writings of those Roman historians that the Christians were accused of hating humanity or the human race. And so I say that was fascinating, but kind of in a sad and daunting kind of way because this is the charge being laid against what you might call conservatism, and certainly against evangelical Christian positions that demand a biblical definition of gender, a biblical definition of marriage, a biblical definition of morality. At first, they, they just didn't like it, but now it's becoming, you're a hateful person if you say those things and believe those things. And so... The faith, once protected, in our country at least, by our government, is now becoming suspect and 
perhaps even subordinate to the laws called hate laws. In some ways, we think everything's changing. In other ways, we're forced to recognize that Solomon is right in his wisdom, that there is nothing new under the sun. So rather than wring our hands and imagine, oh, how bad it's going to get or how bad it is, let's just recognize we are not the first ones to go through a process of becoming more and more the outsiders and maybe even being startled and shocked when someone would look at us and call us a hateful person. Peter says that's exactly what may take place. But he says this, the witness of your works will argue against their foolish accusations. In the face of those accusations, the witness of your works will speak for you. Notice a key word that's repeated in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, it's the word good, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. It's the exact same word in the Greek. I don't know why they translated it two different ways in my translation. It's the same word. And and that helps us connect the dots. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, good and honorable, so that even when they accuse you, they can't help but look right through all your good and honorable works. It will confront them. It will force them to reckon with the fact that they know there is an untruth that they are promoting. In other words, live a righteous life, and that life will be noticed. The accusers will be conflicted because they despise your faith. But they can't argue with your way of life. You're a good employee. They wouldn't trade you for a neighbor with anybody new moving in. And they'll tell you that. They see your loving family. They know you're a good citizen. And it conflicts them. Peter says, the strength of your personal defense rests in your record of daily living. That's the defense you have. Your life says otherwise. They accuse you of evil, but your life says otherwise. Now, to be clear, Peter is not saying that they will stop their accusations in light of the overwhelming evidence of your moral goodness. He is simply saying that your life will speak the truth in the face of lies. Sometimes your words can be used to do that. We have the promise in the New Testament that if you're ever hauled before the courts like the apostles were, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say if you have the opportunity to use words. But your life will speak the truth. It better anyway. The record of your daily living should speak volumes. And that's a warning lest we think that, oh, all I have to do is live a good life and I won't face opposition. No, your accusers may still speak evil, but they will be conflicted by the truth of your life. Remember the account of Jesus being tried before the high priest. They made accusations. They weren't true. They even had to pay witnesses to say false things. And it just didn't fit with the life of Jesus. But did they stop? 
No. Peter's point isn't it's the, it's the silver bullet that stops accusations. He's just saying it's the truth. And if they won't hear your words, let them hear your life. That thought continues into our final point. The reasoning for this defense of our works before our accusers is given to us at the end of verse 12. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's actually a kind of a complicated verse to translate. They're not all like the strong action verbs. So verse 12 could be read, by keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that if the time comes that they speak against you as evildoers, having seen your good works, they just might glorify your father in the day of visitation. So there's really this one big idea. When they accuse you, your life will stand as an argument against them. The only question mark is which way will they go in that moment of decision? How will they respond to the conflict within them when they see the witness of your works, even though they are accusing you of being an evil person? It says all that will unfold in this day of visitation. They will glorify God on that day of visitation. It's as if Peter was hearkening back years and years ago, 30 years ago for Peter by the time of his writing, sitting on a hillside as Jesus preached what we call the Sermon on the Mount and said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Here Peter is saying, I want to remind you of what Jesus said about the witness of your works, that men will see those good works. They'll be forced to. They can't, they can't look around it. Even if they accuse you of wrongdoing, they will have seen your life, and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven, or as Peter says, on the day of visitation. So what does that mean? What is that day? The word's borrowed from the Old Testament, It had the meaning of God coming to intervene in some way that is dramatic. We think of a visit as, you know, a drop-in. Hey, I left something on your porch for you or a quick casual conversation. It's almost the exact opposite in the Bible usage. If God was visiting, it means big trouble or big blessing. Because the times it's used, it's, God will visit you with destruction upon your cities for how you treated my people. Or God will visit his people in judgment through the Babylonians when they siege, besiege the city and carry away captives. Visitation can either be strong judgment or it can be incredible blessing because the other use of visitation in Old Testament and borrowed into the beginning of the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, is that God would rescue his people through the Messiah who would come and visit them. God doing something dramatic in intervention, that's a visit. 
So based on that twofold usage, we can make two conclusions about Peter saying they will glorify God on the day of visitation. One, that glory of God may be seen in his judgment. It may mean that they will glorify God as Philippians 2 tells us. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. It may be that they will stubbornly refuse to hear the witness of your works in this life, but they will ultimately glorify God in the day of judgment. And in that day, the righteous will be vindicated. That would, that would be significant to Peter's argument. You keep living right, even though you're in exile, you're a pilgrim, you keep living right. They'll see it, even though they won't maybe agree or like it or be convinced by it. And you will be vindicated one day when they say those good works pointed me to this holy God. And I didn't believe. So visitation may be the day of judgment. So do right, even if you aren't recognized for it in this life, you will be vindicated. But perhaps Peter means that the glory of God may be seen in the other meaning of visitation, not in judgment, but in mercy, meaning some may glorify God in true worship, having been drawn to salvation by the light of your good works. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of works, lest we would boast. But now that we've clarified Saved by faith, he says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God beforehand ordained that we should walk in them. Do not underestimate, Peter is arguing, the value of the testimony of the Christian life, the witness of your works. It may be very much that your good works this week are a city that's set on a hill whose light cannot be missed. And that light shines and draws them to faith in Christ. So perhaps they will give glory to God because your good works have convinced them that they should surrender their lives to this God, that they should be rescued from their sin by your Savior. Peter's giving us hope here. Either way, whether I'm vindicated in the day of judgment and those good works stand as a testimony against the unrighteous, you can think of Noah building an ark for hundreds of years, doing right, doing what God told him to do, though nobody believed him and nobody accepted his message. And Hebrews says this, he by faith Noah built the ark, to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world. His works of obedience and faith condemned the world, and when the rain started coming down, it's as if in that moment, that day of judgment, every one of them knew he was right to live his life for God. So do right, because they will glorify God in the day of his judgment but also do right because some will see your good works 
and, and may, as we see in chapter 3, come to you and say, Why, how do you live like that? Why do you have such hope? Tell me about this God you believe in. Because if you can stand at a graveside and, and talk like that, I don't have that confidence. And they will glorify God because of the witness of your works. So do right this week with the hope that God will be glorified in you. Paul wrote after his conversion, of course he's known as the persecutor of the church, known for his subtle tricks and tactics, the infiltration and try to find the believers. He's converted, God takes him into the wilderness, kind of gives him seminary class there, and then he wants to go and preach in churches and no churches will let him preach. They're thinking, we know this trick. Show us your seminary degree, and now we'll let you in, and then you're going to haul us all away. So nobody will let them come and preach in their churches until a couple faithful brothers pulled him in, kind of vouched for him, and, and got him his opportunity, so to speak, from kind of the, the human perspective. And as the story of Paul's life began to be seen, when the transformation of the persecutor to now servant of the Lord was seen, Paul writes this at the end of Galatians 1, and they glorified God in me. That wasn't stealing glory from God. It was just the reality that God has designed the lives of his followers to be lived in such a way that people see it and may be drawn to glorify him, may be drawn to faith in him. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a book that was written called Lifestyle Evangelism. Now, it was received with mixed reviews. Some criticized the book for its neglect of sharing the actual verbal, articulate, theological gospel message. Others were awakened by the book to realize it's not enough to lob chick tracks inside of a screen door and, and think that's the sum total of the Christian's influence. So both sides maybe had some kind of point to make, but the reality is that expression stands as biblical. To be consistent with the Bible, we aren't making an either-or choice. We're not choosing either words of witness or works of witness. Peter is simply ringing the bell in this paragraph to say, hey, don't forget, everywhere you go this week, you can witness the witness of your works. So we have to use both words and works. It just here the emphasis is works. Get to chapter 3. And you'll be told to be ready to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Use your words. You have to. You must. Here, we're just reminded to think about the lives we live, the way we drive, the people we talk to when we shop, everyday life, lifestyle evangelism. In our text, Peter uses the word in verse 12, conduct. And how do the Greek dictionaries define it for us, manner of life, behavior, or modern word, lifestyle. 
It's the witness of our works. So knowing that there is more that can be said about the Christian's witness this morning, let's obey this text, which calls us to a righteous life that will be a witness to the watching world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us as we strive to live lives that are good, that are honorable, that reflect the holiness of you, our God and Savior. Show us what needs to change, because certainly here we could feel the conviction from your Holy Spirit that we don't want every aspect of our lives on display. We know that not everything in our lives would draw people to the holiness of our God. So steer us to change, and in the quietness of these moments, in this day of rest, would you bring us to the point of submission, confession, and repentance, readily equipping ourselves now to stand as salt and light in this week ahead. May our good works be used not for the promotion of our own reputation, not for glory of for self, but to point to our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.